You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello, 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 and welcome again to the global podcast Thought and Leaders. As you know, I scour this beautiful, magnificent, elegant planet of ours for the most perceptive, the most inspiring, the most intuitive, the most, I've run out of eyes, everyone, <laughs> but the most interesting people out there. And this week um, is absolutely no exception to the rule. Uh, this week we have with us Alistair Campbell. Hello, Alistair. How are you? I am fine. And how are you on this merry morning here in London town? I'm okay. I'm very cold because I've just come back from a very long swim in the Lido. Really? Where's the Lido? Parliament Hill, Hampstead Heath. Gosh, I haven't been to Lido for years. Now, Alistair, if you were to do a elevator pitch, what would you say within 30 seconds? Um, well, I, I have a spiel. If, some, if I meet somebody who doesn't know who I am, they say, what do you do? I say, my name's Alistair Campbell. I used to be in politics and now I do lots of different things. I'm basically a writer, communicator, freelance strategist, and I do lots of campaigning on mental health. That's my elevator pitch. Brilliant. Now, the thing about mental health is what we're going to be speaking about in just a second, because I'm going to be talking about your amazing new book. I just want to ask you a few questions to do with your former life in politics. I was uh, looking at Trump's various spin doctors over the years. (laughs) Um, And uh, you are El Doctore of spin, uh, well, was. What's your gut feeling on his spin doctors? I recently had a a really long and interesting conversation with one of them, which was Anthony Scaramucci, the guy that lasted about 11, 12 days. The Mooch. The Mooch, yeah. And actually, he contacted me out of the blue because he, you probably know, he's become a complete loather of trust and he's absolutely, mm. absolutely rooting for Biden. And he phoned me up. I wrote a, a big piece in the New European about it because he, he really had some interesting insights. Mm. And I thought it was quite interesting. I'd never met the guy. And when I watched him performing for Trump, I thought, God, this guy's just a car crash. But but actually, mm-hmm. talking to him, he's clearly very, very bright. Y- you couldn't do the job that I did for Tony Blair for Trump because Trump doesn't listen to anybody apart from himself. Mm. And he's untrustworthy. So I think it's I think it's impossible to work for Trump. I don't know how anybody's managed to stay the course because he's one of those guys, uh, you know, I'm afraid Johnson, I think, has similar tendencies. He doesn't really have friends. He doesn't really, he talks the talk on loyalty, but actually he just wants absolute sycophants. And he's a narcissist. And, you know, I think that's impossible to work with. And you're saying that you think that's the same with our friend Boris? Well, first of all, Jonathan, if we're going to get along, don't call him Boris. His name is Johnson. Boris Johnson is basically a confection. Ah, really? What, what, what's that about then, Alistair? <laughs> Getting himself known as a character, comedy character, that you can call by his first name. And I I think that that gives a a misleading impression of who and what he is. He's actually, I think, quite a dangerous character because he's a mixture of entitlement and quite, you know, really quite, I think, quite extreme right-wing views in some senses. Um, And also he's a complete charlatan. So, I think we don't, you know, people like that, you don't give them the credit of thinking yeah, that they're nice, it. cuddly characters. So will you mm. promise me you'll never call him B-O-R-I-S again? He's just the Johnson. <laughs> um, <laughs> take that if you see what I mean. <laughs> I think he does lie quite a lot. I think Trump lies without even knowing that he's lying. But I think right. Johnson does have a very loose relationship with the truth. I don't think he really knows why he's there. I don't think he's very, very good at detail, and I think we've seen that, you know, again and again and again. So there, there is a similar, there is a similarity between them, and and I hope that they both are one-term people. So you think that the long, tall, grey man Biden is going to be getting in, do you? Well, I certainly hope so. I think it's look. Four years ago, everybody was convinced that Hillary was going to win, sure. including Trump, including Hillary. The, the inability to, to run a normal campaign, I think, has suited Biden because he's just been able to do a couple of things a day that 
seem to have impact. I'll tell you what I think has really come through, though, and I was thinking this when I was watching Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and her wonderful win and her wonderful acceptance speech. I think that what has come through with Biden is a basic decency and a basic humanity that Trump completely lacks. Trump, Trump does not have humanity. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not interested in people. He never, ever talks about the American people. He talks about himself. Whereas I think Biden has got a real sense of connection. So I think Biden's campaign has been interesting and, and quite good. And it's, you know, American money is so important in politics, sadly. And the fact that he is outgunning Trump on the fundraising suggests to me that there are an awful lot of people who don't normally give to politicians who are giving to Biden. Yeah. That is all about these narcissistic politicians. I'm much, much more interested in you and in your new book. It's an inspiring uh, read. In the beginning of the book, you say a profile writer once said to you that you had a successful career, quote, despite a history of mental health. And when you next saw him, the same writer said that perhaps he should have changed the word despite to the success was in part because of a history of mental ill health. Well, look, we've all got mental health and nobody's mental health is 100% perfect 24-7. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I want to show that it's possible to have a mental health condition, to have members of the family with mental health conditions, and yeah. be able to lead a very fulfilling and interesting and hopefully successful life. And I do think that my any professional success that I've had, I do yeah. now, looking back at my life, I think it's... I do think it's in part because of, rather than despite, I've written 16 books now, and four of them are novels. Three of my novels, the ideas for them and the writing of them came as I was emerging from a depression. Now, it's a very small thing on one level, right? So I can say, I think, factually, I don't think I would have ever written of those books if I didn't know about depression, even though they're not all about depression. If you've had depression and you're not a narcissist, and look, we're all we've all got ego. I've got a very big ego. I'll admit that. If, and if you're not a narcissist like Trump, but you get depression, I think it does give you a greater empathy for other people. I think that's a positive. It gives you a kind of more authentic look at the world because you are sensitive. You've read the book about my depression scale. When I'm at the other end of the scale, where I'm a bit manic, yeah, you know, I can't, I can't explain what it's like to have that energy that you have when you're like that, and the creativity that you feel. Now, some of it is crazy, okay. Some of it is stuff that you don't necessarily want to to keep, and it's not very productive. But some of it is. I talk a lot about changing the lens on mental health and mental illness. And I think sometimes we've got to move away from this idea that it's all bad. Absolutely. Some of it's good. Yeah. The thing about people who suffer from depression, they are willing to open their eyes to reality. Whereas others, I sometimes think, it's like, I'm not going to look at this. I'm going to keep my head in the sand. And people who are depressed, you know, they've got a lot of courage to be able to see things because they do see things. The point you say about seeing the world as it is rather than as we want it to be. And if you think about why there is such a stigma still, and there, there has been sort of, you know, millennia, centuries of taboo around mental illness, yeah. it's because we are meant to just say, well, no, it's not like that. You're not really feeling like that. I started off, Alistair, in advertising and marketing and all that stuff. Buy this and it will make you happy. Buy that and it will make you happy. Uh, and I realised that isn't actually the way the world really works, is it? It isn't. And I think that one of the problems with the modern world is that we conflate happiness with wealth, with ownership of possessions, with yep. buying things. And with the moment, the feeling of the moment, whereas I don't think happiness is about the moment. I think happiness is a, is a state that you work towards. Yeah. 
I say in the book that I think maybe this is an atheist way of sort of staying vaguely on the straight and the straight and narrow. Yeah. I don't think we know we've had a happy life until we start to reflect upon it as it's kind of ending. So you don't know what you've got until you've lost it or you're losing it. Is that what you're saying? If you just think happiness is about having a good time or feeling good, hmm. I don't think that necessarily is going to lead to you concluding at the end of it that you've had a happy life. I think happiness is something that you can look back on and judge according to whether you've been able to maintain good relationships with the key people in your life, whether you've yeah. been able to make a difference and make a contribution, and whether you've been able to make the most of what you've got. I hate it when we're all meant to feel things. We're meant to enjoy oh, yeah. the same thing. It's why I've never really enjoyed, I've never really be, been a big one on Christmas. I don't like I don't like weddings. I don't like parties that much because I hate that feeling that everybody's meant to be enjoying something. Yeah. It's a bit like that word, Alistair, should. I hate that word, should. Well, I, I'll tell you what, I, I hate it even more when, when it's applied to the word just. You should just do this. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're so right. In the book, you open up about your two older brothers, Donald and Graham, who died prematurely. Are you afraid of dying? Don't think so. I mean, yeah, I am in that. I don't, I don't think I'm afraid of the act of dying. I think, um, you know, I've seen people die and I, 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 I feel that <clears throat> I'm, I, it's funny. My, both my brothers were 62. That they died prematurely. Yeah. And you were worried about you dying prematurely. I wrote the book at age 62. Right. And I'm now through it. I'm 63 now. Congratulations. Thank you. Look, I think that both my brothers, Donald, was he had schizophrenia. The medication that he was on for most of his adult life mm. meant that he, he lost two decades of his life. He died at 62. My dad died at 82. And that is what happens to people who are on these antipsychotic drugs. Mm. Graham was, was something different because Graham, I think, had similar issues to me. I think he was, I think he had depression, but he never acknowledged it. He definitely had addiction issues. Mm. I became somebody who kind of ran to, to a challenge. So once I recognized I had a problem, I sort of, I embraced it and I tried to deal with it. Whereas I think Graham was much more, he pushed the problem away. He didn't want to confront it. And, you know, there's, I describe in the book about when he was in hospital a few months before he died, but he had to have a double amputation of his legs. And, um, yeah. and he said, you know, he, was, he, he looked scared, to be honest. He did look scared. But as he was going into the, the theatre in, in the hospital in Doncaster, he said, here we go, then one for the booze and one for the fags. And, and I'm afraid there was a truth in that. He lost, you know, he lost both of his legs because of his lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. With Donald... You say in the book that there was the man beneath the face of the illness. And this thing about people looking at mental illness, they have this impression of what it is. But of course, there is a man, there is a woman, there is a boy, there is a girl beneath what you're seeing on the surface. Yeah, and we shouldn't identify them by illness. I mean, we don't, you know, if we look at Theresa May, we don't say, oh, there goes Theresa May, the diabetic. You know, if we look at somebody with, with asthma, we don't say... We don't say, you know, I mean, I get asthma. I, I've never been defined as an asthmatic, but we do it with mental illness. And it's like, I'm actually looking at a huge picture. I've got him up in my office in my house and I've got a huge picture of Donald on the wall. The, the picture is actually of him playing at Glasgow University because he was the official piper there. Glasgow University was a wonderful employer mm. because they never, ever saw him as a schizophrenic. They saw him as an employee who had schizophrenia. And that meant that they were aware. Yeah, I know. Yeah. They had to manage that sometimes. You know, a lot of people who get serious, who are on serious medication with serious side effects that aren't very nice often, when they feel well, there is a desire to get off the medication. Yeah. And Donald used to do that and he'd slip off the medication and then he'd go haywire. But, but they were brilliant with him. They were absolutely brilliant with him. Yeah. There were some people that I once met in a hospital who were schizophrenic. And, and it was sad because they were on these pills and they would stay at 
this place and then they know that a period later mm. for some of them they could go home mm. but they said to me i'm going to be coming back because there isn't anything to do i don't know what else to do so the system it just goes it's like going round and round and round and round in a circle in a cycle actually of going nowhere i think it look it's not good i think it works for some people i regret to say i think it helps if you have money mm. A lot of it, I think, depends on, like, so much in life, but I think particularly in mental illness as opposed to physical illness, I think so much depends on the relationships with the people that you actually have to look after you. Um, I mean, I write so a lot true. in the book about my own relationship with my own psychiatrist. He was, he's became, become very yeah. important to me, but also to my family. Donald had loads of different medical people down the years, and I quote one of them in the book who says, you know, Donald was my greatest patient. I was so proud of him because he had a job, he had a car, he had a home, he had more friends than the rest of us put together. That So much of that was his personality, but it was also the fact that at various periods in his life, he was lucky with the sort of medical support that he had. Yeah, I think it's so hard for people today working in the, in the health services. They, so many of them just don't have the time to develop the relationships that you need to develop when you're talking about managing somebody through. Mm, it takes time, yeah. You were talking about New Zealand. Whilst they were having their election, they were also um, holding a referendum on euthanasia. Your cousin, who you're very close to, how do I pronounce it? Lachi? Lachi. Yeah, Lachi. He hung himself. Mm. Mm. You've grown up seeing some pretty heavy stuff. Well, I was an adult when that happened. Well, still, you're growing up with him. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, the reason I wanted to write about Lackey in the book was because, you know, a lot of this discussion about mental health, I think the language that we use is so important and how we think about things is so important. And it really, really annoys me. And I can remember at the time of Lackey's suicide, mm. You know, including people that I'm close to and people in the family saying, you know, God, what a terrible, selfish thing to do when you've got three young kids like that. Yeah. I just, I don't buy that. I don't see it as selfishness. I see it as the, the ultimate in mental illness and the pain of mental illness. And, yeah. you know, I describe in that chapter that I write about Lackey, I describe what it's like for me when I'm lying in bed, unable yeah. to sleep. Yeah persuading myself that Fiona and the children will be happier if I'm dead. Now, I know that's mad, right? I know that's not true. Yeah. You think like that when you're depressed and you're ruminating. And I think that Lackey, who was a very lively, interesting character, he grew up in the Hebrides. He was spotted as a child actor. He made a couple of really successful films, and then he tried to be an actor as an adult. It didn't quite work. He then you know, became a crofter and he worked on the land and he worked on the boat and all that sort of stuff. And like a lot of people in kind of isolated parts of the world, he had a drink problem, he got depression. In the end, it became too much. Yeah. And he killed himself. Yeah. You know, I wrote that chapter and I sent the book before I even sent it to the publisher. I sent it to his three children. I yeah. said, I don't want to write this if there's a single word of it that you don't like, that you don't agree with, that hurts or that brings back memories you don't want brought back. But what I wanted them to see was yeah. the perspective of somebody who's been close to that situation of thinking actually life's not worth living, but of them understanding that far from him doing it as an act of selfishness, I wouldn't be surprised if he was doing it an act of love for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I get that, Alistair, because it's not about selfishness. It's about stopping pain. You know, things get to such a point that you don't know what to do anymore. And you look at the family as well and you feel guilty. you just got to do whatever you can to stop the pain for everyone. Throughout this book, you're talking about the pain it leaves with those left behind. Absolutely. I mean, I was talking just last week to somebody who's lost his wife recently to suicide and, and, and didn't see it coming at all. Their life will never be the same again. There's not a day, there's not a day of, of their life that they won't feel that pain. Yeah. 
And I, you know, but I, I still don't believe that the person who takes their own life is doing it selfishly. They're doing it, as you say, because they are in pain and they feel they're causing others pain yeah. and they want to end it. Yeah. It's not stopping the life, it's stopping the pain. Exactly. And I think not enough people get that. I think they have to understand that. Yeah. <sighs> Tony Blair, you got annoyed with Tony Blair when he was talking about mental illness and yourself. <laughs> I did a bit. I mean, yeah, I did a bit. It's the only time I've ever gone out publicly and criticised him because I think Tony gets a lot of criticism from a lot of people. He doesn't need it from me. <laughs> okay, fair uh, enough. <laughs> I, I actually think he's a good bloke and he was a terrific prime minister. And, and when you compare him to the shower we've got now. But he wrote in his book, The Journey, in his autobiography, he, he was writing about me and he was very, very, very nice about me. He's, mm. He wasn't really aware until he read my diaries just how kind of bad it got at times because I did kind of, you know, keep it to myself a lot. But he said in his experience, there are two kinds of crazy people. There are people who are just crazy and they're dangerous. There, there are people whose craziness gives them a creativity and an energy and a verve and an edge that's really productive and that's Alistair's craziness. And I. Mm. said to him, listen, that is the kind of stereotyping that we're actually trying to break down. Yeah, it's a bit like Van Gogh, isn't it? Saying, you know, oh, crazy, so it's okay. You know, if you look at the campaigning that's done on this, and I'm very much a part of this campaign, but if you look at the kind of people that are associated with it, you know, myself, Stephen Fry, Ruby Wax, you know, you're talking about people who are, okay. are kind of edgy and so, so there's a danger that that sort of stereotype is fueled by the kind of people that we that we see in the front line of the campaign. That's why I think it's so important that we get, you know, I hate to use the phrase because it sounds patronising, but quotes ordinary people, close quotes, that their stories mm. really count. And of course, we're in this kind of celebrity culture, and you need to kind of be known to get known, and and, and to get you know the programs that are made on TV. I'd love it. And occasionally it happens, but I'd love it if you could get those sorts of programs that didn't involve people who were well-known. Yeah. Life is about the real unsung heroes rather than the ones that we all sometimes know about, isn't it? Exactly. Men with depression tend to be able to spot each other. That's so true. It's not a gay dar, it's a... Uh, <laughs> what would it be? It'd be a depression dar. <laughs> well, I think there is a bit of that. I mean, usually it's the eyes that give it away. There's something in the eyes. <sighs> If I feel a depression coming on, I stop shaving and I now force myself to shave every day. Yeah. Oh, well, because you think that will actually help stave off going up a point. Yeah. It's interesting that it's called clean shaven. You do feel kind of healthier, I think, if you've. I know you're sitting there with a sort of. <laughs> this beard again, my weird beard. Growing a beard is different. I say in the book that. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it now. We've got this blind on the landing outside our bedroom. And if I walk past that blind, yeah, it means I'm getting depressed. So sometimes if I am feeling I'm getting depressed, I lift the blind anyway. It just gives me a lift. Mm. And things like, you know, I mentioned going swimming this morning. I mean, today actually I feel pretty good. But one of the reasons that I do some sort of exercise every day is just that nine times out of ten, I feel better having done it. That's what I mean by routine. I actually don't like routine in, in the form of I don't want to go to the same office every day. One of the things I've really missed about lockdown is not being able to travel as much as I normally do. But these little points of reference of, you know, shaving, the blind, exercise. Yeah, I get that, yeah. You talk about throughout the book, and you just mentioned it there, this scale. I'm going to put something to you, Alistair. A regular guy right, goes to the GP and they are feeling seriously depressed. GP will get this person to sit next to them, and then they will say in herring tones, now tell me, on a scale of one to five, how suicidal are you? Alistair, come on, mate. Really? You go... <laughs> Well, I'm I'm free. Is that good enough? Uh, well, no, I'm afraid you're not hitting four and you're not hitting five, so therefore, <laughs> don't cut it this morning. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Um, 
You know. I'm not suggesting my scale as a kind of medical device. I'm, and, and the thing I'm clear about in the book is mm. I am not an expert on depression. I'm an expert on my depression. Nobody right, else right. is. I mean, I'm, I've talked to other people, but I'm not a medical expert. I find my scale really, really useful for me because around it, I built in certain tactics. So, for example, that thing about the blind, if I'm at a six when I wake up, and I don't pull the blind up, I'm going to be seven by the time I get to the bottom of the stairs. I just know that mm. through experience. I think with a doctor, though, it's interesting, my own psychiatrist, David, when I go to see him, I've noticed, I mean, I've been seeing him for about 15 years now, and I, I notice um, that when I'm talking to him, he has certain questions which I now realize actually are part of the scale testing really he doesn't say to he, he might say to me have you been feeling suicidal please don't tell me he's going to do it on the scale of one to five is he he doesn't he doesn't do that but what he does do he'll he'll ask me if i've been feeling weepy he'll say have you been feeling weepy he'll say, mm, yeah, and has that actually led to you sort of right crying and sitting there crying he's got a certain it's not a scale but it's a similar thing you work right. up from you know when you wake up, do you want to get out of bed? If you say no, then mm, okay. And then what sort of things are you thinking about while you're there? And then, and that might be the point at which I say, well, actually, last night I couldn't sleep and I was thinking about who's coming to the funeral, you know? Yeah, yeah. Good doctors have their own ways of working it out. But I, th- I think the scale thing for me I found really, really helpful. And I find it helpful both ends. I mean, if I wake up and I'm feeling two, which is like, borderline manic yeah. i've got to be careful yeah, of course i think it's great from the point of view in your case of getting you to have a sense of control saying i can pull the reins in i can let them go a little bit at this point yeah and sometimes i can't by the way and that's the reality of it yeah but sometimes i do i want to talk to you about drugs do you think that in terms of antidepressants they are overprescribed? Probably yes. Oh, really? Doctors don't have a lot of time. Mm. People go into their surgeries expecting to walk out with something that gives them hope of feeling better. The mutual deal that can be done in the 10 minutes that they've got, whatever it might be, is let's give this a go. Mm. In a way, maybe I'm too dependent on my own psychiatrist. His view is that We've gone through a long process of trial and error with different therapies and different medications and different this and different that, and we seem to have found one, sertraline, that works for me. Maybe coincidental that I've just changed my lifestyle, I've got older, I've got a bit wiser, but it's not a risk I'm prepared to take when I've gone for four or five years on the same medication and I've been reasonably healthy certainly getting fewer really bad bouts of depression than in the years prior to taking this drug. Mm. So I don't really want to risk it. When I studied psychotherapy, one of the things uh, I learned about was a saying, which is healer, heal thyself, in terms of I asked, why do people go to become psychotherapists? In the book, you say this, people also feel angry towards others as a defense mechanism when they blame themselves. And that can turn into a vicious cycle. Has that got to do with politics, that people are angry towards others as a defense mechanism when they feel that they are to blame themselves? I don't know why, but Donald Trump just popped into my head again. (laughs) Yeah, possibly, possibly. I think it's a very human thing, though, isn't it? I I think there is something about, you know, we don't like confronting our own weaknesses. We don't like confronting our own failings. Hmm. It takes time to get to a place where you can say, yeah, maybe it's not somebody else, it's me that I need to look at. And certainly one of the insights that I've taken from seeing David Sturgeon for as long as I have is, is we can't change other people, we can only change ourselves. Now, actually, one of the arguments we have is I think we can change other people. We can certainly change the way that other people think. And that's partly what politics is about. You're trying to, if you're if you're the opposition, if you're Joe Biden at the moment, mm. if you're Keir Starmer in the UK, you're trying to get people to change the way they think about politics so that they don't behave as they behaved before and they don't vote Trump, they don't vote Johnson, they vote for you instead. Mm-hmm. In terms of actually making change, 
mm. can't be responsible for the way that other people are. We can't make them change unless they want to. We can only change if we want to. That's quite a tough thing to face up to because it means that you do have to say, yeah, well, okay, mm. it was my fault then. It was my fault. Yeah. It was my fault that Fiona and I couldn't get on. It's, it's too simplistic for me to say it's her fault. She's not making me happy. Therefore, it's her fault. When actually to step out of that and say, well, no, I'm not happy, but it's not her fault. I'm not happy. And it's me that has to change. A couple of centuries ago, there was a rabbi. His name was Rabbi Israel Salenter. Okay. I want to quote something from him to you. Uh, it's a bit long, but it's not too long. Here it goes. When I was a young man, I wanted to change the world, but I found it was difficult to change the world. So I tried to change my country. When I found I couldn't change my country, I began to focus on my town. However, I discovered that I couldn't change the town. So as I grew older, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realize the only thing that I can change is myself. And I've come to recognize that if long ago I had started with myself, then I could have made an impact on my family and my family and I could have made an impact on our town, and that, in turn, could have changed the country, and we could all have changed the world. I like that. I do like that, yeah. This goes back to something you were saying earlier, Alistair. When you get older, it's when you start recognising things. Well, you know what? When you were reading that, yeah. until, the, until the halfway point, I was thinking, oh, no, no, because this guy probably could change the world. He could change the world. Why is he giving up? But then, yeah. of course, he gets to the point of where he focuses on himself and then by focusing on himself, he's able to make change. So I, no, I think, I, think that is, um, I think that is a very wise observation. A lot of people, Alistair, talk about a mental health on the TV, good to talk and all that sort of idea in terms of communication and mental health. Do you think this is all bullshit? Let's tick the box and say do this. But actually in terms of governments really doing something about mental health, it's just a tick box exercise because they're not really going far enough. At least Cameron and Theresa May talk the talk on mental health, even if they didn't deliver. Johnson doesn't even talk the talk, <laughs> even though we're going to have a second pandemic and it's going to be mental illness arising from COVID. Yeah. No, I think there are very few governments that do this well. There are three parts to this in terms of the change to get to the services and the understanding, the awareness that we need. Mm. Government, businesses as employers and individuals. I don't trust this government to do it. Employers have got an incredibly important role in this, especially now with COVID. Individuals can do so much for themselves. And I reckon that now age 63, mm -hmm. I reckon that having reached a point in my life where I'm much, much better at looking after my mental health, I reckon I have ended up saving the National Health Service quite a lot of money because my physical health has improved as well. I mean, I'll tell you really kind of weird, it's a bit weird, this story, but Go on. when we were in opposition in the mid-90s, I developed this chronic stomach condition. It was really awful, and I ended up, had to go to the hospital and get checked out, and I was diagnosed as having ulcerative colitis. Mm -hmm. The guy who was treating me at Guy's Hospital, he said, look, this is pretty grim because you're going to have to take medication for this probably for the rest of your life, and it's probably going to, at some point, it will morph into Crohn's disease. Oh. Pretty horrible. Yeah, I know. I then had to have fairly regular checkups, and I went for a checkup a few years ago. It had gone. Oh, And the guy said, this is kind of a bit weird, uh -huh. but it is literally gone. I now have to go uh -huh. for an annual checkup and it's not come back. I think that's because I was looking after my mental health. I don't know that. It was after I left number 10, so maybe less pressure, less stress. It was after I started to see David when I finally realized mm. can't confront my mental health problems on my own and I need proper professional help. It happened after I started doing sport and exercise every single day on a regular basis. It happened after I started looking after my diet better than I used to. Mm -hmm. I have fewer reasons to go and see 
a specialist than I had. I have fewer colonoscopies than I had. And on it goes. Now, so I don't know. I think that's the other thing when I talk about changing the lens. If we look after ourselves better physically, Mm. we end up better mentally. We end up saving money. Towards the end of the book, you actually give a list of things that we can do. Just mentioned, of course, exercise and watching your diet. You also talk about something that was suggested, not by a psychiatrist or psychologist, but by Marilyn Monroe, which was Think in Ink. Thinking in Ink is writing. It's writing things down. It's using the written word, pen and paper, and I mean pen and paper, I think pen and paper is better than this than a keyboard, Mm. to write things down, to write through. So when I get onto the exercises that I do with my psychiatrist, a lot of which I've included in the book, a lot of them involve him saying to me, right, go away and write about humility. Go away and write about, write me a list of things you're grateful for and things that you resent. And that was interesting purely for the fact that when I went away and did it, even though I was incredibly angry at the time and really fed up with the world and fed up with politics and fed up with being depressed and all the rest of it, when I actually wrote down my resentment list, it was about a page and my gratitude list was about, I could have done a book. Really? Yeah. I got the point. And then thinking in ink is things like if I've got a problem, I sit and I write. I, I, I sometimes I sometimes write letters to myself. That's good. Dear Alistair, you're not in a good way. Mm. Let's think it through. Let's have a chat about this. And I, so that's what thinking in ink is. Look, yeah. Let's be honest, any excuse to get Marilyn Monroe. Very good, which brings me to the famous, because I think, I think, I think you should paint at this, by the way, uh, Alistair. Build your own jam jar. Okay, so... I went to Canada to talk to a woman called Janine Austin about genetics because she runs the world's first genetic counselling psychotherapy service, okay? Okay. You go to her and she checks out your genetic history. And it's very, very interesting, and I went and did that. Then as we got into talking, and she won't mind me saying this because she's said so publicly subsequently, she gets depression as well from time to time. Right. We ended up talking about this theory. It's, so I, I can't really claim that it's mine. So I can't, I'm not sure I could patent it. But she basically <laughs> said, see your life as a jam jar. Right. The bottom of the jam jar, there's a sediment, and that's our genes. There's nothing right. we can, G E N E S, there's nothing we can do about them. They're just a consequence of where we, where and who we came from. Got it. Then your yeah. life is a mixture of experience event that fills up your life and the, and it fills up your jam jar yeah and that can be good and it can be bad and it all mixes in and a lot of it just goes because we forget most things that happen to us some of it stays in it might add to the sediment and it's stuff that we can't get rid of and then she says when the jam jar is over full and it explodes that's when we get ill and right. she said instead of trying to undo the past and go over it endlessly, ruminating about it endlessly. The other way to think about it is to is to grow the jam jar. Right. So that the jam jar becomes bigger and you can pour more life into it. And I've got to be honest, when she was first talking, I thought, what the yeah. is she going on about? <laughs> but then I had this eureka moment a few days later when I was back home in London, lying in bed, and I woke up, and it was like a ping moment. And I went downstairs and I drew my own jam jar. You're putting stuff on top of the life. And the gene and the gene stuff, and you know, no, you don't think you're just damping it down. No, I don't think you are because you're you're actually opening it up. Mm. Because a part of what you do, I'm not saying you don't look at that stuff. I'm not saying I do that. I, you know, part of my jam jar is my mm. psychiatrist, right? Right. He's not the first part. There's other stuff I can do for myself, but I will undo the past or analyze it. But if I go, if I take you through what became the foundations of my jam jar, mm-hmm. the biggest slab of it, I call FFF, Fiona Family Friends. If I am strong with Fiona, if, I, if our relationship is good, the whole of my life is better. Beautiful. 
If we're good, we get on better with the kids. If the kids are happier, we're happier. Um, if our friendships are strong, we, we've got people we can rely on and trust, that's good as well. And then I go into the next bit is meaningful activity. Mm-hmm. And I've got a dotted line through that one because it's got to be meaningful activity that gives us a life and pays me a living. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be meaningful activity that I want to do to change the world. Back to the rabbi. Yeah. And then I go into the fundamentals, which are sleep, diet, exercise. And then I go into the things that are really important to me. So bagpipe music is important to me. Burnley Football Club is important to me. Mm-hmm. Motown is important to me. Nature is important to me. My Tree of the Day contest on Twitter is important to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting everybody to think, that, oh, yeah, I need that for my mental health. Most people won't need any of that. But they'll need stuff that's equivalent to that. And then I go into things like the thematic stuff, curiosity, creativity. Mm-hmm. Learn something every day that you didn't, learn, you didn't know when you woke up. When I plunge into a depression now, one of the things I do, I say to myself, right, here's my jam jar. Do something for every single part of your jam jar today. It might be sort of like FFF. It might just be, right, Fiona hates the fact that when I get up in the morning, I don't unload the dishwasher. If I'm up first, I'll go down, I'll unload the dishwasher. Burnley, I'll phone the manager or one of the players and just have a chat. Bagpipes, I'll play them or listen to them. I'll go for a walk. Yeah, I get that. Do you think that governments, when it comes to COVID, could look at it from the point of view of this jam jar with the genes at the bottom being that what the virus is about, the next stage being what they've done, and then the next stage being different sorts of things that you know they could start approaching? Jonathan, I'm not having this jam jar contaminated <laughs> the thought that Boris Johnson is going to use it. because Get off my jam jar, Johnson. <laughs> He'd drop it. He'd leave a mess all over the floor. Yeah, get your own jam jar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, do think, I do think that something like a crisis like the pandemic, yeah. there's a different way you've got to approach it. You've got to have a very clear objective, and then you've got to have a big strategy about how to deal with it. And, and, I, and I don't really think they've been very good at that. I think the jam jar is very kind of personal very personal tool to help you assess your own life Mm. and then apply that assessment to the good times and the bad. And I've used it. I mean, I describe in the book how I had a really, really, really bad crash in Scotland a couple of years ago. Mm. And I I, I was, I was suicidal. I was, and I went away and I just hid in this barn for a while because I couldn't face talking to people. I just didn't want to be there. Mm. While I was there, I said, right, I'm going to give this a go. I've got my jam jar. I'm going to go and get a few hours sleep. And then in the morning, I'll do something related to that jam jar. The depression went faster than they normally do. Now, it could be coincidence, right? I just don't know. I just, I just feel it helped me at that time. Towards the end of the book, it says, this book won't make me rich, but it might help change the way some look at mental health. It might change the mind of a government minister or future government minister. It might inspire someone to go into psychiatry or to seek help. I hope so. I was looking the other day at the Amazon review. It was one of them literally moved me to tears. It was a guy who said that he was basically on 10 on my scale, suicidal, actively considering he was going to kill himself. He was talking to his dad and his dad said, look, have a read of this book. And he said, and the guy said it brought it back brought him back from the brink mm-hmm. and i thought you know that's pretty cool wow and then i do get messages from people who say it's completely made them change the i mean here's one for you piers morgan oh piers yeah yeah piers is somebody who i think is sometimes a bit too fond of the man up approach and you know what have you got to be depressed about but he said it's made, it made him completely rethink the way he thinks about mental illness so and this is back to the point about the rabbi, I guess. You know, your you, you rabbi and, and his approach to the world. I've set out how I've changed the way that I think about things and the way that I handle my own mental health. And I hope it can make a difference. And, and here's the thing. You, you won't know. Most of the people who read this book, I'll never meet them. Most of them won't get in touch. Most of them won't post reviews. Most of them will just get on with their lives. But if a few of them... You know, if it can have that impact even just on a few, exactly. then, you know, it's worth writing. Exactly. 
Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression by Alistair Campbell. This podcast reaches around the world, so uh, I'm sure it will be coming out in different languages at some point. I used to speak very, very good German. Aha. Uh-huh. So during lockdown, I relearned my German through the Goethe Institute. Oh, yeah. And I'm now three chapters from the end of translating the book into German. <laughs> You're translating your own book? Yeah, with the help. So cool. With the help of my Goethe Institute tutor in Leipzig, Andrea, I send her a chapter a day. She sends it back. And yesterday, I only had an average of eight mistakes per page. I'm going to give you an extra house point. <laughs> Goethe's going to be proud of you. <laughs> no, that is fantastic. Oh, well. <laughs> Whether it's going to be in German, Mandarin, English, or any other language, depression, anxiety, all of these mental illnesses, schizophrenia, you know, it could happen to anyone. It could happen to you. It can happen to people that you love. Learn how to survive, how to cope, how to move on, how to take that next step, step by step. It doesn't matter how small those steps are move forward you can do it believe in yourself what's really interesting about the current climate is and i can't think of anything else in certainly in our lifetime and possibly in history where everybody in the world is actually worrying about the same thing yeah which is this pandemic and there's not a single person in the world who's not been affected by this i know because i mean this is why i'm afraid we're you know back to where we started on politics if you see the way that too many of our politicians, and particularly Trump, have sought to use it to keep dividing and keep dividing. We, you know, we talked about suicide, and we know from the last global financial crisis that when there's a financial hit, suicide goes up. It's just, we know that. I think on the mental health side of COVID, I, I fear that the worst is yet to come. When you say the worst is yet to come, are you saying that, let's say they come up with a vaccine, you're saying that it's still going to hit us from the mental illness point of view, even post the vaccine? Definitely, definitely. Because I think if you go through it all, the the mental health consequences of the people who've been working and dealing with this in hospitals and care homes and often without the proper equipment and protection, the number of people in those services that have died, you think about the people who've lost family members and friends and not being able to see them when they were dying, not being able to comfort them, not being able to go to their funerals, not being able to Terrible. respect them. Terrible. You think Terrible. of the you think of kids who are I was even thinking the other day, we were in this hotel in Germany and there was a couple came in with their baby and mm-hmm. the, so the couple were both wearing masks. And I thought, my God, you know, being a baby and you're growing up now and I know, yeah. And so yeah. I think that, that I think the, the kids who are at school who are having to wear masks, not being able to go out with their friends, students who are being locked, you know, told that the universities are safe, but they've got to stay in and they can't go be a teacher. Then you think about the economic stuff coming down the track. I think that's the big one. And that's going to happen regardless of whether we get a vaccine in the next couple of years because that is happening already. And I, what really annoys me about our government Mm. is they're not preparing for it they're just not preparing for this even though they know it's coming what would you tell them to do to prepare for it you know they they, okay give me two ways that you can prepare for it well one of the uh, things that was established recently matt hancock and boris johnson during the first several months of this crisis didn't have a single meeting with a mental health organization Mental health charities in this country do an incredible job of delivering services as well as campaigning for change. And so point one, get them all in and discuss with them how together with government they can continue to provide services. In schools, I think we, if you remember what we did in, in government, the whole thing of the classroom assistant, yeah, I remember, yeah. It's not unreasonable to think that there might be a case for having classroom mental health assistance in classrooms. That's interesting. I mean, it would be expensive on one level. But there isn't any more money left. I think we'd end up saving money in doing that. I think if we had somebody who was in every class classroom looking at kids, watching out for how they were feeling, watching out for what was happening to them, then I think that would end up saving money in the long run. And then I think the other thing that has to happen is the preventative stuff, the stuff that doesn't actually cost that money. So when I talked earlier about exercise and, and, and diet, 
I'm afraid the government is going to have to bite the bullet on some of the stuff that we're eating and, and, and the, the stuff that's constantly being marketed to kids as, as healthy when it's not. A lot of this is about leadership in attitude and explaining to people properly what we can do to help ourselves. Now, even as I say that, I can hear the kind of Brexit brigade going, nanny state, nanny state, nanny state. Exactly, yes. It is not nanny state to say to people, eat like this and you will be healthier. But then what government can do is to make that healthy approach to diet cheaper rather than more expensive as it is now. Inspirational. Right, people, live better. Get the book. And who knows, maybe, I doubt he will ever do this, by the way, (laughs) but maybe one day we'll have Prime Minister Alistair Campbell. Do you think it's ever going to happen, Alistair? No, I don't. Or that merry-go-round has spun. I think so. I mean, it it is. Do you know what? Looking at Joe Biden, I mean, if he becomes president at 78, that's going to be pretty amazing. Isn't it? Just keep going. All right, look, thank you again, Alistair. And no, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, me too. And to everyone else, you know where to get the book. Uh, and uh, God bless. Leaders is a goodbye production. If you're looking for award-winning content for your brand or want to chat about the show, you can either email reinventatme.com, that's reinventatme.com, or why not visit us at www.thoughtandleaders.com, that's thoughtandleaders.com.